0: Welcome to Nothing Never Happens, a radical pedagogy podcast. I'm Lucia Holsether here with my co-host Tina Pippin, and today for our December episode, we are thrilled to welcome Sarah E. Silverman to the podcast. As a feminist pedagogical theorist who specializes in universal design for learning, Sarah is a luminary in the multi-front struggle to make education more accessible, open, and free. She has been active in the movement to resist academic surveillance technologies and to develop approaches to authentic assessment. And I'll just say, if you're part of an institution that uses remote proctoring programs, For testing, we recommend that you run, not walk, to Sarah's writing on these topics, which we will copy in the show notes. Currently, Sarah is based at the Hub for Teaching and Learning Resources at the University of Michigan at Dearborn, where she works as an instructional designer and where she also teaches courses in women and gender studies and disability studies. Also, just so everyone appreciates how multi-talented Sarah is, we want to note that she is a scientist by training and has a PhD in entomology and demography from UC Davis. No doubt, because of this background, um, she's also got great ideas about accessible pedagogy and universal design in STEM classrooms in particular. You can find many of her ideas um, about pedagogy, about surveillance technologies, about centers for teaching and learning and their histories, about harm reduction in syllabus design on her amazing blog. Suffice to say that if you are someone who seeks to cultivate more accessible and open learning environments or to just learn about what that might mean for you, Sarah can teach you a whole lot Welcome, Sarah, to Nothing Never Happens.
1: Sarah Silverman, thanks for being with us on Nothing Never Happens. Um, could you start by telling us how you got to do the work that you do now?
2: Sure. Um, and I first just want to say thank you so much for having me. And it's it's really a pleasure because I have listened to this podcast for a long time, and a lot of my uh, a lot of my like personal heroes and teachers have appeared on this podcast. so it's really uh it's really quite the honor. um and it's great to meet both of you also. <clears throat> excuse me, I the first thing that I want to say about the work that I do now is that, um I would say the work I do now is is all about taking a disability and feminist informed approach to sort of instructional design and instructional technology. And some of that occurs in the official kind of context of the my my day job, which is being an instructional designer um, at University of Michigan, Dearborn. I work in a teaching and learning center there. And I'm also an adjunct in women's studies. I, I teach disability studies, but uh, a lot of that also involves through it, like writing, teaching and activism, outside of the institutional context. Um, And a lot of that has to do with academic surveillance technology, which I I hope we'll talk more about later on. Um, But um, as, as a big basic example that many listeners may have heard about or have actually interacted with themselves, I do a lot of work in um, resisting and hopefully abolishing uh, remote proctoring technology or e-proctoring. So that's where somebody is taking uh, some sort of test or examination um, online, and there is a computer program watching them and monitoring them in various ways um, in hopes to either deter or punish cheating. Mm-hmm. Or any kind of violation of academic uh, integrity, um, and all of those all of those terms are in major air quotes and um, need to be unpacked and uh, and discussed. But um, this is one of my my main projects that I approach from a feminist and disability lens mm-hmm. is um, exposing what is so bad about these technologies um, and uh, why we need to keep them off our campuses, away from our students and faculty. And yes, they do harm and impact faculty too. Um, mm-hmm. So that I would say that's a kind of overview of of a lot of my work. Um, and I want to talk about some of the some of the books and experiences that have brought me um, to this work. Um, I'll I'll say some books first, um, just because they're really top of mind. Um, so one of them I was introduced to in grad school, and that's how the university works by Mark Bousquet. Um, And when you work in a center for teaching and learning, um, what you are told by the administration is that you are just sort of supporting and lifting up teachers and giving them more resources for how to do their jobs. Um, But what we learned through how the university works is that you know, everyone who teaches is part of a system to make money for the university, and they are, you know, actively being exploited from the level of the undergraduate student, all the way up through the graduate student instructor, the non-tenured faculty member, the tenured faculty member. Everybody, you know, produces, produces value for the university in some way, and um, that's become a major sort of undercurrent of how I think about the job of supporting teaching um, and supporting teachers at an institution and why I have a lot of critiques of the sort of teaching and learning center system. Mm. Um, another book, uh, actually a pair of books I want to mention is Mad at School by Margaret Price and Academic Ableism by Jay Dolmage. Um, and these were books that were the first that help me understand my own experience in academia um, as a person with a disability, as a person who was undiagnosed autistic until adulthood. Um, and, you know, there was so many, t- so many times when I was uh, almost kicked out of uh, programs that I had been in, um, my bachelor's, my PhD. Um, and <laughs> I, when I eventually understood that it was because I was not following the norms um, of uh, what was expected in academia and also starting to understand how the intersection of identities of neurodivergence, but also race, class, gender um, work together uh, to, pos- to like make people available for kicking out um, and marginalizing whether they're students or faculty. Um, these books uh, really helped me Understand that, and th- there's an anecdote in in Mad at School, um, where the author Mar- Margaret Price is uh, speaking to one of her colleagues, a professor, and saying, "There's this student um, who keeps coming into my class um, with food and just like sitting down and eating this <laughs> this big bowl of ice cream, basically." Um, and she's she's reporting this to to the author as some kind of major problem. Um, like you know how can we go on basically with this student just like just not following a pretty uh unimportant norm of the of the classroom which is like you don't bring in a a bowl of food necessarily and you know i that has just always really stayed stayed with me because i in my career have done so much teaching consulting and like trying to help um, instructors work through issues that are going on in their classroom and so often they're presented as something that you, you just hear it and you're like, this is, how is this a problem? There's just somebody who is not staying right within the lines um, and you're presenting it as a problem. Um, and that's how so many conversations about about teaching start for me. And that's like what I hope to disrupt in a lot of ways as well. Um, and then the last book I want to mention is a newer one um, that's called Lean Semesters by Sekhila Nzinga Johnson. Um and um this book is about how higher ed actively produces inequality um for a lot of PhD students. And it's looking primarily at women of color, PhD students and adjuncts. Um mm-hmm. and it, it relates to how the university works in some ways, which is that um one thing I've become very attuned to and hope to you know think about and address in my work is the fact that uh working at a university is not always good for the people who are doing it. It's it's a job, but it, it can be harming them in pretty deep ways, especially economic ways, but also forms of epistemic injustice. Um, and uh, I really have over, over time delving into critical university studies literature and also just the experiences of students and instructors that I work with. Um, you know, come come to this place of if you're someone who's supposed to be helping instructors with instructional design or pedagogy and things like that, you have to really be a student also of how the university works and how it is harming its members. And uh, I believe this is what you, you discussed with uh, Jody, Jody Milamid, like how not to become co-opted. Um, yeah. How do you remain in it? somebody who is helping people and not just fronting for the university and for the administration? How do you remain in in touch with and, you know, a, a partner in conversation about people's real lives and not just trying to shepherd them through uh, administrative pathways and progress reports and student evaluations and all of these things? So those are a couple of um, those are a couple of books that have impacted the work that I'm doing a lot um and I'll just mention one more thing about sort of activism and student protests and things like that is that I went to McGill University in Montreal for my bachelor's and I was there doing a movement that was known as the Maple Spring uh later on and it was um a like a, a year or two, basically of student protests about the raising of tuition from about sixteen hundred dollars to about thirty two hundred dollars a year, and I was an I was an American student um, in in Canada at that time. And when I first heard of this, I was kind of shocked. Uh, at that time, I didn't know the history of free tuition. Um, I became you know I was. Oh, I'm only 30 years old, so like I haven't lived at really a time that there was free tuition I didn't know the history of free tuition, um, of of CUNY pre-tuition, of UC basically pre-tuition. And I I was kind of confused about what this protest was all about, that we were supposed to be shutting down, just refusing to attend classes, um, according to the organizers. Um, and the this was a time when I I really, I really understood that like. increasing tuition at all um, is a huge problem. And that's something to stand up to. Um, And I really learned a lot from from this experience of um, being among student organizers who understood any increase, any, you know, entry of this neoliberal perspective into, oh, well, everyone has to kind of pay for and contribute to their education, because you're going to be getting value out of it. Um, And um, that was kind of my first introduction to student activism. And it's stayed with me. And if if anybody's not familiar with that, that history, you can look up the Maple Spring um, 2012 in in Quebec, um, and learn a little bit more about that. Um, So yeah, so does that answer the question?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, yeah, there are so many threads that we want to like, kind of uh, follow out, I guess, um, maybe one to start, but of course, if you want to pivot and talk, I want to talk about something else, that's fine, too. Um, Is this, is talking about instructional design and universal design, and maybe this is kind of a complementary question with threats to or like impediments to Um, not being co-opted. What are, so can you talk to us a little bit more about what universal design, inclusive learning, feminist, uh, disability informed pedagogy is um, for you? And maybe as part of that, um, we can either ask the follow-up question or maybe it'll just flow naturally. Um, What what you see as um, sort of the sort of the the things that are necessary to kind of work around or through in order to have a kind of authentic version Mm -hmm. of that. Because I think you've already here and certainly in a lot of your writing started to point out that often what goes under the flag of universal design or inclusion is not that.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Um, Okay, so I'll talk about a little bit about what the definitions that are currently operating of what universal design for learning might be, and how that connects to feminist pedagogy. And then I'll talk a little bit about the term inclusion and some research I've been doing on that and, and kind of thinking thinking with that term. Um, so universal design for learning, even though I've been a critic of it, I still, uh, a critic of some of the ways it's been implemented and co-opted, I, I'm still a big believer in the basic premise, which is, uh, I think I would put it this way, that learning needs to be designed for a variety of people. It needs to be designed with uh, learner variability in mind instead of assuming that there is some sort of normal normate learner. And then maybe there will be options for people who happen to diverge from that norm. Um, But there is still like some um, student that we have in mind that's like, okay, this is being designed for a normal student, an average student. Universal Design for Learning um, would design with a whole range of people in mind. What that typically looks like is providing multiple options um, to engage in any certain learning activity. Um, And I think like a really concrete example of this that I think most people will be able to grasp onto is that Okay, for learning to occur, obviously there's there's a pedagogy, there's a selection of materials, all of this stuff, but very basically, everybody needs to be able to perceive the, infor- the information um, that you're going to be working with, and not everybody can see or read something visually. Not everybody can hear something at all or as well as other people. Not everybody speaks the same language as their first language. Um, Not everybody speaks a spoken language. Um, And one sort of basic element of universal design for learning um, would be thinking about perception and making sure that there is uh, an equitable um, uh, design so that everyone can perceive perceive information. There's other elements of universal design um, for engagement, Um, So everyone not only needs to be able to perceive, but they need to be able to participate um, in the learning activity. Um, And not everybody does that the same way. And there needs to be multiple, multiple options for that. Um, The way that I think that universal design relates to a a feminist approach or a feminist pedagogy um, is that you know as as feminists we want to take a critical perspective on power and authority and confront power and authority and also recognize and incorporate diversity of experiences and identities and intersectionality um and i think that i think that this overlaps very nicely which is that we're not looking for that normate um learner and thinking about oh there might be people who diverge in this way and that way um but um understanding that Each student is going to be coming uh, with their own unique set of identities and experiences, and that is a strength. It's for sharing. It's for building community um, and not trying to kind of. uh, Calculate, Okay, like, is this person just a little bit different from this person in that way, but more of a holistic approach to the classroom community and to individual students? One, you know, one critic, one, one potential critique you could make of universal design for learning is just the word universal in the first place. How is it, is it possible to design something that is universally accessible to every single person? Um, Probably not. Um, I think what we're going for with universal design, again, is not that we, any one person has the ability to make sure every single person is included in every, every way, like one person's uh, limited experiences will make it that they can't. You know, you you can't imagine what every person's learning needs are, their disabilities, their experiences that are going to affect their learning environment. But it is more the taking the perspective that um, learner variability is expected and and embraced. Um. So, so that that's a little bit about universal design. How I think it how it connects to feminist pedagogy. Um, one kind of mini research project that I've taken on in the past couple of weeks is to think about this term inclusion and inclusive teaching. Now, if you go on the Teaching Learning Center website of like literally any college or university, I'm going to go in North America for right now. I'm not as familiar outside North America. I hope, I hope to become more. They're going to have a page on inclusive teaching. And they probably did before 2020 in George Floyd, but they definitely do now. That's for another time how this became the institutional response to Black Lives to Black Lives Matter. But uh, okay, so every teaching learning center is going to have a page on inclusive teaching, and what it will probably say is something along the lines of inclusive teaching recognizes the diversity of all of our students and their identities and we embrace that diversity, and we want to make sure that our lessons are designed, again, using this for all language, so that they are relevant and accessible to all students and inclusive of all students. Um, It may, you know, those definitions may, depending on the school, um, begin to address something of the isms. Oh, also inclusive pedagogy acknowledges racism, It it acknowledges sexism, classism, ableism, maybe. Um, and, you know, acknowledges that these, these forces are systemic, and we um, oppose them and fight them in some way. I I have no idea how the, that particular definition of inclusive teaching got started. Um, I learned it when I was a grad student working in the Teaching and Learning Center at UC Davis. Um, I learned to teach it to other people, to facilitate workshops on it, um, and to kind of, like, cherry pick all sorts of different teaching methods from universal design, from feminist pedagogy, from culturally responsive and culturally sustaining pedagogy, and just call this inclusive teaching. And if I'm being honest, I don't know, I don't know where that came from. Now, I want to mention, there's a not completely different, but alternative definition of inclusive teaching that I only learned once I started learning uh, studying disability studies. I took a class in disability studies and education um, and the term inclusion or an inclu- inclusive educational environment um, in that realm refers to one in which people with disabilities, students with disabilities, are not segregated from non-disabled students. It refers to integration. And the the word inclusion is also used in other Educational conversations that have to do with segregation and in- integration. It, it was also applied to the segregation and integration of schools um, for black and white students as well. Um, and so this is one thing I'm trying to pull apart and and work through is how did American higher ed get this term inclusion and why is it em- employed in these sort of like multicultural uh, diversity, Sense um, and how has it been stripped of this meaning that has to do with segregation and integration, um, and and what does that all mean? Um, and the reason I really started thinking about this was one, you know, after learning about this history of inclusive education um, and the inclusion of students with dis- of disability with disabilities, um, but also you know the more that you work with pedagogical texts and theories uh, and try to teach them to other people, you start seeing what is inclusive teaching? It, it has all of, it, it It seems to draw on all of these other pedagogies, particularly feminist pedagogy, in my, in my opinion. Um, and, and so why is it, co- why is it called this? Um, and how did it become a doctrine in the TGM Learning Center? Um, so, you know, you asked me to talk a little bit about what does it look like when these terms are not being employed and deployed in an authentic um, way? And I wanna say like the biggest red flag for me um, is definitely the for all, inclusive of all um, kind of phrasing. Um, You know, if if you go back to the, the disability informed approach it it writes disability out of the conversation completely. It's saying like, okay, yes, we have disabled students, but we need to make this relevant to everybody. And so we come up with reasons why, you know, universal design also helps non-disabled students, but it also relates to racial justice, right? Like like I said, I, I think that you will find that if your university did not have a page on inclusive pedagogy before 2020 and George Floyd protests, they do now. And it was a direct response to it. Um, and, um, I, I think a lot of the, the term in- inclusive teaching, um, when used by the administration, when used at the institutional level is making an attempt to erase identities and, uh, frankly, students who have asked for certain changes, um, and to kind of like lump everything under, um, the same umbrella. Um, another. Major red flag is anytime any of these terms or approaches are deployed uh, in connection with enrollment and retention, which means money. Um, And, you know, I am a very committed feminist pedagogue, disability informed pedagogue, and I try to teach these methods to other people, but it is so easy for uh, administration or even just like the the university uh, media to come in and say like, oh, you know, enrollments are really down, but you know what students really appreciate is feeling a sense of belonging or feeling included. And so we must implement this in order to maximize retention and maximize enrollment. Um, this, This happens at my own job all the time is like, we're talking about a certain pedagogical approach and somebody will chime in with, yeah, this is a way that we can get students to actually enroll here um and stay here because we're bleeding students to other institutions and we need to give them a reason to stay here pay us that tuition money which by the way is just debt for this is debt for the students um so that we can continue to have our jobs so you know I think that that's a I think that's a pretty common storyline um with a lot of institutionally approved pedagogical strategies or like you know classroom approaches which is yeah, there's a lot of good folks um, who really care about students and really care about creating a better teaching environment, a more equitable teaching environment. But um, using the the language that you used before in this podcast, it's it's co-opted very, very, very easily. Um, and it's it's something to look out for. One
0: of the things I think about with um you know this language of inclusion and inclusion as part of the history of um including disabled students and not not segregating disabled students and also part of the racial um the histories of racism that are attached segregation that are attached to that um is that the the term i often hear about uh that i think is used similarly to the way you're naming inclusion being used in this other context is mainstreaming. Mm-hmm. Let's mainstream disabled students. And I, there, I don't know what to make of that, but this use of the word mainstream as a sort of synonym for some kind of inclusion might be, yeah, I mean, know, I, a deep pool of revealing. Yeah.
2: I think inclusion, I mean, it's a very nice it's a nice term. Like I, I like, I like it in the way that it can be used. But I think most of the way it used, it is used in that like special education, disability education conversation. It, it is a euphemism for mainstreaming, right? Like mainstreaming is just the term that is too explicit um, about what we're talking about to use, and that's that's where in- inclusion comes from. Um, so, it, you know, I don't know exactly how that is applied in in the university context, but I would, I would say that there's, there's like so much of that, like, inclusive language that you kind of start wondering, okay, like, has it already been determined, basically, in this higher education context, who's on the margins, right? And we know that we can't go too far in segregating those students in certain types of classes certain types of housing you know what whatever it may be um so you know our response to that is we're going to become inclusive we're going to do inclusive pedagogy we're going to have an inclusive campus campus environment and you know I, I i don't have all the answers i'm i'm not as much of an expert or a theorist as like some of the other guests you've had on this podcast but i i do think that that's it's an important clue right that inclusion used to be or an alternative definition is something about in- integration, lack of segregation, um, and that it, it feels like that's been lost in in a certain way from from the conversation, like in, in higher ed in the way that it's used. So I, I don't know, it's, it's something I'm thinking with and through. I haven't fully worked it out yet.
1: Yeah, this is all really helpful. Um, you know, not only Centers for Teaching and Learning, but Offices of diversity, equity, and inclusion are all in collusion to muddle these terms, right? Um, I want to switch gears.
0: In collusion. (laughs) Very punny. Continue. Sorry, I interrupted.
1: Yes. Well, I want to switch gears a little and uh, ask you about um, effective classroom practices, including. you know, emergent models that you're seeing, you know, what kind of ideals are there. And also uh, one of the rabbit holes I went down uh, reviewing your material was on, you know, creating the non-abusive syllabus and it got thinking how over how many years have I written abusive syllabi and how do I not do that? So could you take us through some concrete classroom practices?
2: Sure. Um, I think there's a there's a health, amount of healthy debate about what I am gonna gonna share. And it, it really has to work for the individual instructor. Um, but one of the sort of uh things that that guides me is is not necessarily any one thing to implement, but um what do we have to resist and reject? Um and there's a, this idea of cop shit, right in the classroom. And I think that's mm, What's being referred to in this um idea of against the syllabus as an instrument of of abuse. um, and what what that idea is about is you don't want to be making arbitrary rules for your students that um that don't have anything to do with learning, that don't mean anything else besides I am the instructor, I have the authority. And I think, you know, the basic rule of thumb is if the statement can be followed with, Because I said so, you know, (laughs) that it probably shouldn't be on the syllabus or in the classroom. Um, And um, so I I have been a proponent of things like flexible scheduling and flexible deadlines um, to kind of avoid getting to that place. of it's due on this date because I said so (laughs) not because there's any, uh, you know, true. Uh, value to it being turned in on that date. Um, I'm a proponent of limiting grading of, uh, thinking about different ways of providing students feedback. And this kind of general umbrella is called, it's called ungrading. It's, it's been picking up steam, um, over the past couple of years. Um, but then, you know, this is my cautionary note. I'll, I'll share something that I, I wrote in a blog post, um, on a a site called Feminists Teach Online. Um, And this is kind of a story about, I was teaching an online disability studies class, uh, and I thought, you know, I have implemented all of my best techniques, flexible schedule, um, you know, you can turn things in whenever you want. Um, You know, we go by the week, so you always know what's coming on the different days. Uh, you have the whole syllabus ahead of time, so you can go ahead or catch up, I'll, you know, all of these things that I thought would really help help students. And a student came to me and she was like, I got to drop out of this class. It just, you know, it just doesn't work for my schedule. And I, I thought to myself, how could this not work? <laughs> you know, I was a little bit upset and incredulous. I was like, how could it not work for your schedule? I already told you, you can turn things in late, you can do them whenever you want. Um, and There's not going to be any penalties if you turn something in late and all this, all this stuff. And she just, she just told me, uh, you know, I understand all of that, but here's the truth. Your class goes week by week. There's assignments due each week. And I've got these two kids, they're teenagers, and they have, they require a lot of me on the weekends. And I only have someone else to help them, you know, every other week, basically. So Every other weekend, I'm completely, I'm completely tied up. And I she worked full time also, of course. Um, and so she was like, I don't wanna have to feel like I'm behind, you know, I don't want to have to feel like, again, like I'm on the fringe of this whole situation. I know you said I can turn things in late and I won't be punished, but but she was basically saying to me, the design of this course makes me feel like I'm playing catch up. I have the life, the schedule. The needs the experiences that is considered marginal to this learning experience um and that's how i'm feeling about it and she wanted to drop the class and you know i i heard when, when i heard that it took me a long time to to think through it and i was like yeah no i i really would be making any student who, who who doesn't have basically the same weekly schedule each week feel like they're really on the margins of this class because it follows this weekly schedule i know i said you can hand things in late, but that doesn't necessarily change, uh, the feeling that this isn't designed for me. This isn't thinking about what my life is like. So I eventually, I eventually was like, I gotta, I gotta change this. Um, and so I I guess my cautionary, my cautionary note about any practice that seems to fit in with universal design, um, is that it's it's very unlikely to be universal and you really need to be in conversation with your students. Um, and, you know, I was just thinking about this, te- I know this isn't related to <clears throat> academic writing or activist writing or anything, but, um, you know, I'm a, a lifelong student of also the Hebrew Bible and the <clears throat> rabbinic Jew- Jewish thinkers and, um, I, I just want just want to share this because I, I was thinking about it yesterday. Hold on, I'm just going to pull it up because I know you can edit this part out. So, um, you know, there's like this very famous statement um, from uh, from this Rabbi Rabbi Hanina, um, who's quoted in in the Talmud, and it, it's it's. It's quite famous because it just is very simple, but very meaningful about teaching. He says, I've learned much from my teachers, even more from my colleagues, um, but from my students, I've learned more from all of them. Okay, that's very nice. He's he's saying the students have taught me more than any of the sort of like professionals or more senior people, or even like my peers have taught me. Um, And you put it in context, I think you can think of it a little a little bit differently, which is that directly before that, another rabbi is quoted. He says, uh, his name is Rav Nachman Bar Yitzchak. He says, why is the Torah, and I I would sub in study learning in in this situation, um, likened to a tree? Because it says in Proverbs, um, it is like a tree to those who grasp it. Um, And he says, you know, this verse comes to tell you that just like a small piece of wood can set on fire a larger piece, um, junior scholars um, can sharpen, you know, their teachers. So I I think part of what we learned from this is that when you learn from your students, and obviously we should all learn from our students, and and most of us do, he's likening it to setting something on fire and burning something down completely. Uh, And I just really appreciate, I really appreciate this sentiment. It's it's not just like, oh yeah, I'm going to write down my student's name in the acknowledgments of my book because, you know, they said something in class one time that really made me, really made me think. It's like, no, maybe students aren't inspiring us to just say, you know, what you're doing is not working. (laughs) Um, You need to, really reconsider it. And that was my that was my experience with this student. And that's kind of my like major asterisk to universal universal design in general, which is that, you know, you think something can be universal. And then once one student's experience can, can tell you like, yeah, you kind of need to rethink the whole thing and burn it down in some way.
1: You've been listening to part one of Nothing Never Happens, the radical pedagogy podcast, and our interview with Sarah Silverman, Stay tuned for part two, where we talk with Sarah about surveillance culture in higher education and ways to resist it.